0: March 22nd is International Water Day. Water. We use water for everything from cooking to bathing. There's hardly anything we can do without water. We live in a culture where perhaps we take certain things like water for granted. Water. It's a good thing, right? But what happens from a mental and physical perspective when a Human-made flood forces people, families, entire communities off their land. Well, my guest today, Dr. Meryl Ballard, is an assistant professor, an indigenous scholar, the University of Manitoba. Dr. Ballard is a member of Lake St. Martin First Nation in Manitoba, which is a signatory to Treaty 2. And much of Dr. Ballard's research has focused on how policy and legislation impact traditional lands, livelihoods, traditional knowledge systems. Dr. Ballard has worked extensively with flooding and water management. So we talked about water being an amazing thing, and we also see how it can have other effects. Dr. Ballard, delighted to have you on Humans on Rights." Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Ballard. You have grown up in Manitoba. You are a member of Lake St. Martin. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What do you remember growing up? And I want to get to a point where obviously you've earned your PhD and we want to talk about that experience. But take us back a little bit when you were younger and what do you recall growing up as a young girl?
1: Growing up in Lake St. Martin, uh, what I recall was the abundance of livelihoods on the land the living off the land. Much of my childhood was attending to cattle, feeding them, watering them. And those are my chores, daily chores. And when the cattle, the calves were born in the wintertime, we would bring them inside because that was a part of taking care of them and making sure they don't freeze and wildlife or whatever was close by so they don't smell them you know, to eat uh, the newborn calves. But that was part of growing up, tending to the cattle and as well, too, looking after the land, uh, tending hay in uh, late summer, fall, and making sure there was enough uh, feed for the cattle. We would be out on the land for days at a time and doing chores, a lot of chores. Chores, children don't do today, but that, that was part of my growing up, like the physical chores. And that's how I was brought up, the livelihoods associated with living off the land and the sustainable livelihoods. And then growing up, I remember where I grew up was uh, we had an open field uh, to the lake. It was a farm field where the cattle grazed and there was hay growing there. And then growing up, I started noticing that uh, most of the families, too, they had a lot of cattle. There was a lot of cattle. We had barns that my grandfather built, big barns towards the lake. And there was some machinery scattered throughout the field and going into the lake that was a part of making hay and part of the cattle raising. So growing up, I started noticing that the cattle started disappearing. People started selling off their cattle. And this was gradually, it didn't just happen overnight. As well, too, my mom, too, she had a lot of cattle. We had a lot of uh, farms, gardens, and then growing up, this started disappearing. And I noticed that we started having water from my mom's house going to the lake, which was about a kilometer. It was not far. But we started getting flooded. I remember uh, seeing the water and we got flooded, meaning that we weren't completely under water, like the water would come probably about 100 feet close to the house.
0: And Dr. Ballard, just to put it in perspective, this is, you're talking about, is it Lake Manitoba?
1: Lake St. Martin, Lake St. Martin. I'm talking about the lake itself because there's a community, Lake St. Martin First Nation, and then the lake itself, Lake St. Martin, uh, which is located in between Lake Manitoba and Lake Winnipeg. And uh, connected by the Faford River, Lake St. Martin, and then going into Dauphin River and going into Lake Winnipeg.
0: Okay, so you're talking about actual Lake St. Martin. Okay, thank
1: you. Yeah, the lake proper, I guess, is the proper way. Yeah, well, so uh, we, would, we would be flooded, the lake waters, so the waters would be overland flooding. And this was caused by uh, the construction of the Faford Dam in uh, 1961. So this was a constant flooding. And for those that don't know the Fayford Dam itself, it's a small water control structure. It's small, probably about 50 feet wide. It's a man-made water control structure where you have to physically lift the logs in order to release the water. So that's what was happening. And they would, uh, the province would be releasing the water without consultation. And this destroyed a lot of people's livelihoods because it wasn't something that occurred all at once, but it was very gradual. And the water would come, recede, and it'd be okay next summer again, it would come. And if you constantly flood the land, it's going to change over time. Like the vegetation started changing. People had to sell their cattle because there was nowhere to graze anymore. There was no more land for the cattle and for the hay. And throughout, I noticed that the vegetation changed and what was normal fields going up to the lake now was all bulrushes. It was all swamp and marsh. Like when I say swamp and marsh, it's not all, but very large. Um, Most of the vegetation going up to the lake was now bulrushes, swamp be very damp and then in uh, 2011 was when my community got forced displaced meaning we were displaced against our will Uh, the entire community was uprooted and given uh, 24 hours to evacuate and I just happened to be there at the time uh, when doing research out there checking out the molds in the homes and now with Dr. Gerard that we were out there doing research We happened to be there, and I remember seeing buses at the health center, and people were standing around with overnight bags, like just an overnight bag, thinking that they'd be gone with two or three days, maybe a week, and the two or three days a week led to more than seven years of being displaced from the land. And uh, to this day, there's a lot of families uh, still waiting uh, to move back to Lake St. Martin because there's no houses available for them. And we have a generation of uh, children now that were forced displaced who never knew the community and returned with their parents into a new community. These are the children who were born away from the community, who never knew what it was like growing up uh, in the community.
0: So, Dr. Ballard, can I just ask you, Just to put this in perspective, I mean, this is a bit of a a throwaway just to understand, but there was a lot of cattle farming, as you said. Was that for beef purposes or were they beef cattle or is that what they typically were used for?
1: Yeah, that was what they were used for. Uh, They were sold for beef and that's where the people got their income from and they were were self-sufficient.
0: The building of the Fairford Dam, that was built primarily for what reason?
1: Uh, It was built primarily for the recreational users on the Lake Manitoba side and for the city of Winnipeg uh, to prevent flooding. And we all know what happens when uh, there's a flood. The insurance companies have to pay out for monetary purposes, economic reasons.
0: So then just to sort of move forward a bit, Dr. Ballard, you're living in the community and you know you have all these memories that, as you see, water started to encroach more and more towards the various communities, the houses. And when people were evacuated, when families and communities were evacuated, I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Dr. Ballard, but I believe you said against their will, could they have stayed from your opinion? I mean, would there have been any danger had they stayed?
1: If they stayed, uh, everything was cut off. Hydro was cut off. The roads were used as dikes. The main road going into the community was used as, as a dike. So basically, the little infrastructure that was there was destroyed.
0: You know, we know in Manitoba, there's floods that happen from time to time. And, you know, we see people who are so passionate about their homes and they are they put, you know, there's a lot of sandbagging and, you know, pumps that are put in to try to make sure that if the dikes get breached, that they can pump water out. But that water comes and then it goes. In your case, Dr. Ballard, was the water basically forcing people out of their homes or was it the fact that hydro was cut off and it just made it impossible to frankly live with conditions? I just want to get a sense of, you know, what the evacuation might have looked like.
1: The people were given 24 hours to evacuate. Uh, when uh, they're given 24 hours, decision makers are involved, uh, the funders are involved, basically. What happened right away is the community decision makers leadership were given a temporary band office right away, like uh, to alleviate the forced displacement. Like it just happened because everything was was I guess a pre planned but this was uh, to make it easier for the government I guess uh, to take easement of the uh, land, and now the province uh, is negotiating with. Uh, The three communities for easement of the land, meaning that it wants to regulate the water level. So it needs land, continued land in order to keep the waters at a certain level and to prevent the flooding.
0: So, again, I just want to make sure that I get an appreciation because I want to come back to, again, something you said about that was, you know, people thought they might be gone for a weekend or a week or maybe a couple of weeks. And it's you're talking seven years. When people left in these buses with just bags of, you know, the, the, the minimal amount of personal belongings they could, they could have and got on these yellow school buses, was the water at that point, was it at the houses? Was it looked like it was going to go over the houses? I mean, was that the reason that they were trying to get people into the buses?
1: A lot of the water was uh, near the houses. Some of the houses were already underwater. But I think for the people to be well, they had to evacuate. And I guess they were predicting more water because they gave them 24 hours notice to evacuate. You have to be out of here 24 hours.
0: And so, Dr. Ballard, at that time, when that was happening, where were you in your academic career or what were you studying or what was happening to you personally when they were forcing people off of Lake St. Martin?
1: This was uh, 2011 and I was uh, wrapping up my PhD and doing uh, the last of the, because I do a lot of uh, photography as well, videos. So I was uh, going around uh, taking pictures at the time and I was with a videographer as well too uh, when I was out there plus we had cameras in hand, uh, taking pictures of everything that was going on. That was in uh, 2011, May 8th, I believe. It's been a while, but I graduated it is with my PhD in 2012 so uh, that was a year later but i had a lot of information uh, the work i was doing i never thought that that would be part of the overall uh, results that i would be analyzing
0: right and so what got you interested in you know the study of water management was it simply because you saw what was happening as a young girl what was going on in your community
1: yeah it was experiential like experiencing what was happening and Seeing the changes firsthand before my eyes of uh, people that were well off and the ability to look after themselves going downhill, where they couldn't look after themselves, where they had to sell their cattle and uh, the landscape changing. We used to have uh, big family gardens as well. We used to have uh, community gardens and uh, throughout the years, nobody had gardens because there was simply no place to plant the garden anymore.
0: And that was happening year after year after year. The encroachment happened. I mean, it wasn't sort of that it came to a point and then it receded and it came back. It just continually started to encroach on the community.
1: Yes. When I did my master's, uh, my master's too was about water management. And I remember interviewing uh, the people, getting them to share their knowledge of the land, the oral history, the oral tradition of the peoples, because uh, that's where you get a lot of information from. And you start to link their knowledge with what's happening currently. Some of the stories that were shared with me was about this farmer who had so many cattle that the person I'm describing says, uh, "You could look out in the field and you see big islands, look like black islands throughout the field." Those were the cattle. There's, he had so much cattle.
0: And again, just because of the situation, those cattle presumably are no longer around, and they were forced off because of the, of the flood.
1: No. And another thing too is Lakes St. Martin, if you look at the map of Lakes St. Martin, I don't know if you ever look at the map of Lakes St. Martin, now, there's a North Basin and the South Basin. And there's a part where we call the Narrows. That's where the uh, South Basin flows through the Narrows to the North Basin. A lot of the people that I talked to talked about going over the Narrows at that point from the North side to where the people live, uh, to go to the south side during the summer. And that's where they took their cattle for the summer. And they used to walk over. That's how shallow it was, like shallow enough to walk over without drowning. And now you can't even walk over it because of the change in the water. The water management has changed because of man's interference with the water system.
0: So today, Dr. Ballard, what is happening in that community today? If you? Take us there just because you're a a videographer and a photographer. If you were to take a video or to take a photograph, what would that look like today? Share that image.
1: Uh, If I would have known, I would have (laughs) shared a picture because I have a lot of pictures. But we take a lot of drone images as well. I did comparisons of images from the 1950s to the present of satellite image and aerial photography, where I showed... The way it was back in the 1950s uh, to the way it is now. And uh, you can see that water has really encroached versus the way it was before because of the man-made, the alteration of the flood. And if you go there now, the entire community has been relocated. uh, Unilateral decision-making has been uh, relocated probably... I would say one or a couple of miles from the old community. And when they started construction of the new community, they had to drain the land, meaning that there's water. When you look at the, the aerial images of the landscape, you see dead spots dispersed throughout the landscape. And that's where they built the new community. The traditional knowledge of the people know that those uh, tree stands are uh, rotting from underneath because uh, there's uh, too much water. The roots are rotting, so they're all dead. And uh, you can see these dead stands dispersed throughout, and that's where they relocated the new community. And what they did was the new community is not really allowed to expand because of the way it's built. Uh, They have a moat. All around the north and south side of the communities, which is divided in half by a provincial highway 513, which goes into Dauphin River. So one half of the community is south, one half of the community is north. And there's a lot of environmental factors associated with that because children crossing, there's always, uh, that's a busy highway and it's very dusty. And there's a lot of things associated with it.
0: Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, kind of brings us to what I was saying at the top of this program that, you know, water, of course, is such a necessity in so many, many ways. But I wanted to specifically have you on, Dr. Ballard, because of your research and your personal involvement. And I'd like to ask you personally share your personal thoughts, not your academic research, but your personal thoughts of what that experience is like to have a community forced to evacuate and go through a period that they're resettling them in, the, in an urban setting, not knowing when they're going to go back to their homeland or their homes. What is that experience like from your perspective?
1: It's very hard to talk about it. When I used to talk about it at first, I used to cry. But I think I'm getting a little bit more uh, resilient, a thick skin, whatever you want to say. But I've experienced firsthand, I've seen firsthand how oh, well, people are destroyed. There's been so many deaths. Uh, people were healthy. And the next minute they were uh, for being buried. Seeing my mom spend two three years in a hotel room by herself because she wanted to be close to the community. And uh, seeing her little piece of stuff that she took from her home piled up in a corner. It's very hard. I lost my auntie, and my uncles, I lost relatives because of being displaced. It's very hard. And seeing uh, the toll it took on the people, there's a lot of anger in the people. Uh, people are angry of what happened because they were taken from their homes where they were comfortable and they had big yards. They didn't have to worry about neighbors. And now the new community is like a town setting, like a little town where you have neighbors across the street and there's no privacy. And uh, there's a lot of uh, social problems because of uh, people that were displaced. There's a lot of things that that happened, experiencing that firsthand as seeing what's what happened and very hard.
0: Yeah, that's tough. And, And Dr. Ballard, again, Thank you,, you know, for sharing. And I, and I apologize if I've you know triggered anything. It wasn't my intention. I, I really just want to get your perspective, both as a human who has gone through something this tragic that has caused you to become an expert and get your PhD, first your master's and then of course your PhD, to really understand and explain this. And the one thing I wondered maybe you could share a little bit is um, when we talked earlier, you referenced me, and I hope uh, I'm going to say this properly. I went to a website to talk about Minnow Owen.:
1: Minnow Owen.:
0: Okay, thank you, Dr. Ballard. Tell us a little bit about that project and your involvement in that project and how you got involved in that project.
1: I did this project in collaboration with the Interlakes Reserves at Tribal Council, where I was the facilitator of a workshop. I think there was more than 100 people, maybe 200 elders involved, and we broke them up into different groups. And part of that involved me doing interviews with a few people, giving them a five minutes. I said, tell me what you want to tell me about the flood, how it's impacted you. And those are the interviews that are on my website. A lot of them were Anishinaabemuin in English and some of them are just in English and a few of them are just Anishinaabemuin. And they talked about their emotions, what they saw, what they went through. And I think if you are a language speaker, it would really hit home. But they talked about what they experienced with being forced displaced and what happened when the Alta Channel was built. And to this day, the Alta Channel's still has a lot of impact. And uh, they're proposing another outer channel, by the way, to go into Lake Manitoba, into the South Basin, extreme south, Birch Bay. And again, uh, the people don't want this because once this happens, it will affect the ecosystem. It will have a lot of uh, environmental negative impacts. It's going to affect spawning grounds, the natural springs in the area, the various channels that are connected to the natural channels that are connected within the South Basin. And it's going to ultimately make the narrows, which I described, even larger. And going into the North Basin, where a lot of the fish spawn, and it's going to go into Sturgeon Bay. And from there, it's going to damage the land and the waters. And
0: one of the things, Dr. Ballard, that you talked about was you sat with some of the elders and, you know, recorded their feelings of what they went through, their experience of dealing with the flood. What was the outcome of that? Was there a guide? Did you produce something that helped on, you know, to do with traditional healing? And if that's what you did, can you speak to that, please?
1: I recently got awarded a grant, a five-year grant from Canadian Institutes for Health Research that's over $2 million. So I'll be starting that with Lakes and Martin because I felt as a researcher, I go there and ask them what they want, and I didn't want to leave them. I felt very strongly to help them. So uh, what they want is the youth want, the elders to mentor them about uh, relearning about the land and uh, the experiential part the cultural, or traditional, learning about the land, because that's how they feel they will heal.
0: And is there a chance, Dr. Ballard, that there's going to be a history repeats here where the water is going to encroach on the new community as it's been established, that there's a potential danger that that might be something they have to relive? Or is there a sense that the elders can teach the youth about traditional values of the land because it's going to, to be there for the foreseeable future?
1: The elders will be mentoring the land, the youth, and hopefully the youth will rise up and take stands uh, from being further flooded. But the way the new community is built right now, and they have a direct link channel that goes from the new community directly into the lake.
0: So that should hopefully, you know, mitigate any further damage.
1: I guess it remains to be seen.
0: Right. And Dr. Ballard, this isn't necessarily part of your research, but because you study water and water management, we have in, I'd say, the province of Manitoba in this year, 2022, experienced a tremendous amount of snow. And the big issue is where to put the snow. So one of the things, Dr. Ballard, is that there's always a sense because there's a lot of agriculture and your community was part of it when you were raising cattle, that a lot of agriculture suffers when there's droughts, when it's dry in the lead up to the spring to seeding. And I think we had a pretty tough year in 2021. So now in 2022, we have all of this snow that seems to be sitting around. From your perspective, you know, and I know you don't study flooding, I understand in the bigger picture, but would you say that, are you concerned at all when you see the amount of snow that is here in terms of the, I'll just say the negative impact. For some, it may have positive in terms of providing moisture for crops, et cetera. But can you see the amount of snow here having any negative impact throughout the communities in Manitoba? Yeah, it will have
1: a negative impact uh, because there's a chance of flooding again. But that's the same time the decision makers and all the stakeholders, the parties involved, including the indigenous peoples, So they have to come together and uh, they have to decide where the excess water is going to go. It shouldn't be going to the indigenous communities because we have the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples saying that you cannot force displace indigenous people anymore. You can't do that.
0: Right. So... Fingers crossed, I mean, uh, and hopefully that there's a strategic plan that helps to mitigate that issue for sure, Dr. Ballard. What impact does when you look at water management from some of the issues that you've looked at from your studies, both for your master's and your PhD, talk a little bit about the issue of boil water orders that happen on so many of our First Nations reserves?
1: Yeah, the boiled water uh, is a constant issue. And again, that stems from a colonization because the people's abilities that took after themselves were taken away and taking away that ability that the menopmat is doing. Well, when you take that away, uh, you take away uh, the person's ability to tend for him herself. And uh, you take away that inherent will to live When the government decides, I'm going to look after people, I'm going to give them something to eat. Giving them something to eat is a welfare check once a month. And ultimately doing that destroys the people's ability to look after themselves where they lived off the land once. they could look after themselves because they knew uh, proper hunting, harvesting, gathering, fishing, everything. And they could look after themselves. When they were out on the land, they didn't need water bottles uh, to be out the, on the land because they knew where to get water from. They never took water with them when they were on the land. Wherever they uh, set camp, they knew exactly how to get the water. And uh, that was, uh, that's how uh, they, uh, they traveled. They just had to dig a hole in the ground because of their knowledge systems that they had. They knew exactly where the source of water was.
0: So, Dr. Ballard, when you were growing up in Lake St. Martin, First Nation, did you have a boiled water order? Do you recall that as a young girl growing up in that?
1: We never had any boiled water advisories. We didn't have running water. Our water was taken from the well. We got our water with a pail pumped the water into the pail, put it into the big barrel. And uh, then we filled the big barrel into the house. That's how we got our water. We never had any boiled water advisory. We drank the water with a dipper direct from the barrel and we never got sick.
0: And just in case, I should have said this at the beginning when I asked you about the, uh, the boiled water advisories, for those that may be listening, explain what is a boiled water advisory and what impact does that have on a community?
1: Boiled water advisory comes from the government orders a boil water advisory when a water is contaminated and not fit for drinking. So why these are happening these days is because a lot of homes in First Nation communities, a lot of them don't have piped water. They don't have a water system where they can just turn on tap like the city of Winnipeg, where it has a water treatment plant. And from there, they have a pipe underground where the water flows. So a lot of These communities have a cistern and these uh, cisterns are filled up once a week, depending on a lot of the communities, by a water truck. And uh, that's how they get the water. Some of them still rely on uh, pumps as well to get the water. But uh, basically what happens is the water gets uh, gets contaminated because a lot of these uh, cisterns too, they're not maintained properly because of lack of infrastructure. They don't have the human capacity. Uh, a lot of these communities are chronically underfunded. And the list goes on and on. It's a vicious cycle. And they don't have a proper water treatment plants. Uh, they don't have capacity. They don't have uh, trained people to look after them. And uh, the water gets contaminated. And a lot of uh, the homes, too, they're crowded. There's a shortage of houses. and it's just uh, chronic underfunding, and it's all about the social determinants of our well-being.
0: And so, Dr. Ballard, I was really, when I read a bit about what you were doing and what you had done, I was most interested in having you on because... I started off by talking about the importance of water and how much we appreciate it and maybe take it for granted. And I think your perspective has been very, very valuable and you know, the emotional and physical and you talk about some of those, some of those issues. If I could ask you just, you know, as we sort of come to a conclusion here, Dr. Ballard, what's your hope for what you're going to try to do with your study that you're going to be working on? What's the hope of what you would like that study to do for the future generations?
1: This is community led. It was the community that identified what they needed, and that's what I'm going on. It's not what I think, it's what they want to heal. And the youth really want to learn about the language. They want to learn about the ways of the land, the traditional ways. That's what they want to learn. They want to go back to the land because when you get taken away from the land, you start to suffer everything. When you're outside, you get to breathe in the natural medicines that are coming from the trees, the natural medicines that are coming from the soil, the ground, the leaves, everything. So that's part of the healing process. They want to experience that.
0: And you're going to be, in essence, facilitating that with your study and all of, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting and obviously very necessary. And I wish you all the very best in that, Dr. Ballard. I thank you for your personal reflection, your professional reflection today. And it has been, as always, I find an opportunity to learn when you listen to somebody with your lived experience and your professional experience. I just want to say thank you very much for spending some time with me on uh, on this podcast. Miigwech. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie May Bituin. Music by Doug Edmund. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca.
1: Produced and distributed by the Sound
0: Off Media Company.